God, would you be with us now as we continue our time of worship by studying your word? Renew our minds, Lord, by the power of your word. We ask this in faith, and if you desire that church, say amen with me. Amen. Amen. We'll go ahead and take a seat. Harvest Decatur. Thank you, worship team. Thanks for leading us through a time of worship. Welcome to those of you who are watching online right now as well, and those of you who are downstairs in our overflow room. Let me just invite everybody to take your Bibles with me and turn to Matthew chapter 13. That's where we'll be today. And as you're turning there, let me just introduce this new series that we're starting today entitled Dare to be Different. Dare to be Different. I see this entire series as an outworking of that great passage of Scripture that we looked at last Sunday. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect and, and pleasing to the Lord. Have you got that memorized yet, Harvest Decatur? Have you been reciting it? to yourself in 2021, I hope you have, and, and I hope you've been implementing it. Don't just memorize it to memorize it, imp- memorize it to implement it, to live this out. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. For the next eight weeks, I want to talk about how to flesh that passage out in the lives of Christ followers. How do we live that out? How do, how do we practically work that out? What is this world teaching us that we need to be different from? Dare to be different. Do not be conformed, but be transformed. Harvest Decatur, that's what this series is about. I heard a, an illustration a while back that stuck with me, and it's, it's so good. I, I've shared it once before. Let me just share it again. Teresa Nelson, whenever she teaches Romans 12, 1 and 2, she does this little prop thing that uh, helps people to understand the the whole nature of don't be conformed but be transformed what she does is she takes a bottle a glass bottle and she stuffs inside of that bottle these wires that of course because the wires are going in the bottle the wires are conformed to the bottle and what that bottle represents there is the world and, and we are the wires, okay? We're in the world. We're, we're being conformed to the world. Okay, everybody with me? Everybody got the image in your mind? I thought about bringing a bottle t- this morning and putting some wires in it so you could see this, but I didn't do that, and you'll know why in just a second. What Teresa Nelson does with that bottle now is she takes a hammer, okay? And she smashes that bottle. You know what that represents? Your salvation, you're saved, Harvest Decatur. You are free from the constraints of this world. Do not be conformed any longer to the world. But, but what's the case with the wires, with you inside of that bottle? You're still formed that way, right? And so this is what she does. She takes each of those little wires and she twists them and she bends them. And she says, now you're being transformed by the renewing of your mind. So she takes one of the wires and she turns it and she says, here's the renewal of your mind on the topic of your identity in Christ. She takes another wire and she bends it and twists it and says, here's a renewal of your mind on the topic of marriage and family. Here's a renewal of your mind on the topic of of sex and gender. Here's a renewal of your mind on the topic of money and love and church and and eternity. And and you know, that, that bending, that twisting is painful right? Metamorphosis is painful. Just ask a butterfly. You know, it hurts to be changed, to be transformed, but it's so good. It's a good kind of change. It's a good kind of transformation. That little illustration here is what I see this series about. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. So I'm going to take some subjects. I'm going to take some wires, okay? And and I'm going to see what God has to say about this topic. What does God have to say about family? What does God have to say in his word about sex? What does God have to say in his word about contentment, about morality, about the world, about eternity? And how can we be different from the world? I dare you to be different, Harvest Decatur. And I know how it is. I know the pressure 
that we feel as Christians, I feel it as a pastor, to conform to the world. Because you, know, you might think, oh, Pastor Tony, he's crazy. This is easy for him to be different. You know, that just comes naturally, dare to be different. It actually doesn't. This, I want to blend in. I do. I, I want to sometimes, I think acutely, I felt this earlier in my life when I was a young person, when I was in high school, when I was in college, but I feel it even right now. I don't, I don't want to stand out. I don't want to be different. I want to be camouflaged against the backdrop of the world. You know, that I feel that temptation constantly, even as your pastor, to be relevant, to be current, to be cool. I, I've kind of given that up, actually. But there, there is that pressure on me to do that. And I've got to fight that pressure. We've got to fight that pressure. And I think I've felt it at different times as a pastor. You know, you need to blend in. You need to camouflage in order to win people to Christ. That's the best way to minister to people. Be just like the world in order to win the world to Christ. And I'm here to tell you this morning that I've tried it and it doesn't work. You don't win people to Christ by being just like the world. Why, if you're just as sin-stained, if you're just as messed up, if you're just like everybody else in the world... Why would people want to be a Christian? Why would people be attracted to this? I said this last week. Let me say it again. Dissimilarity is compelling, Harvest Decatur. Be dissimilar. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed. Give the world something different from the, the brokenness and the taintedness that they're surrounded by. If the church is just as messed up and sin-stained as the world, then why would we be attractive to anybody? Dare to be different. Dare to be different. And when I say different, I feel like I need to qualify that. I'm not, I don't mean rude and obnoxious different, okay? And, and I don't mean, you know, hiding from the world in isolation. Just hide from the world. That's what it means to be That's not what I'm saying. Be different in a way that's attractive. Be in the world, but not of the world, as Jesus told us. Be the aroma of Christ Jesus to the dying world, as Paul tells us, 2 Corinthians 2, 15 through 17. Be the aroma of Christ. That's what's compelling to a world that is wasting away. Something different from what the world is giving them. So how do we chart a course for biblical difference in this world? What does that mean? aroma of Christ Jesus look like? Well, that will be our focus throughout this series, throughout the next eight, week, eight weeks as we unpack Romans 12, 1 and 2. As we offer up our bodies as a living sacrifice, as we commit to Romans 12, 2, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And what I want to do today is I want to start this whole series by, by giving us one thing to go after in this, this one, one wire, I guess, so to speak to conform, to, to, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And it has to do with Jesus' words in the Gospel of Matthew. And the big subject that I want to cover today is kingdom-mindedness. Dare to be different, Harvest Decatur. Dare to be kingdom-minded. That's my challenge for you today. Be kingdom-minded. Different from this world. Be about the king. Who am I talking about here? King Jesus, be about his kingdom, being about his kingship, promoting his kingship in this world. That's my challenge to you today. And to help us kind of unpack this and look at this, I want to look at Jesus' words in Matthew 13, 44 through 52, okay? So let me, let me do this. I'm going to read this passage from start to finish, and then we'll just take some time to unpack it. Can we stand together for the reading of God's word? Wherever you are now, even at home, I encourage you to do this. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 52. Church of God, this is the word of God. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. 
When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? Says Jesus. They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of the house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. God, would you help me now to expound as best I can the truth of this text for the edification of your church? I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and take a seat. If you would, take your notes and you can write this down. As number one in your notes, what does it mean to be kingdom-minded? That's what we're looking at. We're daring to be different. We're daring to be kingdom-minded. I'll give you three answers to that question. Here's the first. What does it mean to be kingdom-minded? It means treasuring above all else Christ the King. It means treasuring above all else, above everything else. Christ, the king. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field. And let me just set the context for you here a little bit. Jesus is teaching to a a large crowd at the beginning of Matthew chapter 13. And he delivers these parables, these great parables. I wish I could go through all of them this morning, but I can't. They're so good. The parable of the soils, the parable of the wheat and the weeds, the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the leaven. And then in verse 36, Jesus was teaching from a boat to this crowd of people. Then Jesus leaves the crowd and he goes into a house. And it's in this house that the disciples, his his close-knit group of disciples, come and start to press Jesus for understanding. What what, what did you mean by these parables? Explain these things to us. And especially they wanted to know the, the, the meaning of the wheat and the weeds. Because that was all about, you know, eternal judgment. And they wanted to be on the right side of that, of course. And so Jesus explains that parable to them. And then Jesus follows up that explanation with these fresh parables told only to that small group of disciples. Starting in verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. You know, a a situation like this would not be uncommon in Israel. They didn't have banks, okay? They didn't have FDIC, okay? And so sometimes the safest place for you to put your treasures, if you had treasures, is to bury them in the ground where nobody else knew, where only you could find them. But there's a danger inherent in that. If you are the only one that knows where your buried treasure is and you die, what happens? You get buried treasure in the field that nobody knows about. And so I I can see as Jesus is even saying this, that this resonates with the people. Yeah, yeah, I've heard of stuff, stuff like this. I've heard of people finding these great treasures in the midst of the field. What inevitably happened in a place, in a culture like this, is that treasure finding, treasure seekers were out there looking for that treasure that is unbeknownst to family and friends of somebody who buried their treasure and Maybe they found it plowing up the ground. Maybe they found it after the the rain changed the terrain, and all of a sudden you have a treasure. And what Jesus is illustrating here with this parable is that somebody found this treasure in a field that was so priceless, it was so valuable, it was so important to that person that he was willing to give up everything else he had, sell everything he has to get that treasure. It's that valuable to him. I mean, this is like the ultimate rags to riches story. This is like the ultimate jackpot story. I found a treasure. I'm willing to sell everything I have to get that treasure, to get that field so that that I can be blessed, you know, hashtag blessed with all of these resources. And that would provide for a person's family a treasure like this. Now, let's be clear about something. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven is not the treasure, okay? I think people make that mistake. The king, Jesus is using an enacted parable here, a large packed parable that, that explains 
different components of what the kingdom of God is like. So all of this is part of the the kingdom of God, the person who finds the treasure, the treasure itself, the field, the possession sold in order to buy the field. That's all part of this analogy of the kingdom of heaven. And the the deep question that you've got to ask yourself in, in order to understand what Jesus is saying here is what is the treasure? It's not the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is all of this. What, so what is the treasure in this parable? What is Jesus trying to illustrate with this parable? What is it, Harvest Decatur? Don't answer that yet, and I'm not going to tell you yet. Look at verse 45. Because the treasure is the same as the pearl. In verse 45 and verse 46. Jesus says again, let me, let, me, let me come at this a different way. Maybe some of you have never found buried treasure. Maybe not, some of you have never heard of that. So let me use another illustration that captures the same idea. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great price, of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. You know, in Jesus' day, divers would plumb the depths of the Red Sea and the Persian Gulf and the Indian Ocean to find pearls worth a fortune. Pearls were worth more than gold at this time. Cleopatra supposedly had uh, pearls worth billions of dollars. And the equivalent of billions of dollars is what we're talking about here, this pearl of great price. This merchant here is looking for the pearl of great, that, that, that great score the thing he's been waiting his entire career for and is willing to sell everything he owns in order to buy it. And I'll say that these two parables are similar, but there's, there's a little bit of difference here between the two of them. You know, Charles Spurgeon, I was reading him this week, and he, he was explaining that in the first parable, that person wasn't exactly looking for the treasure. He just kind of stumbled onto it. Here's the treasure. Wow. Wasn't even looking for it. But now we have somebody with a pearl who's actually looking for something trying to find it, trying to get it. And all of a sudden, he, found, he finds the pearl. But he, they both have to value everything that they have in their life as unworthy of this one thing. They're willing to give it all up in order to get this one thing, whether it's the treasure in the field or the pearl. I'd say those are the parallel components to this, these two parables. These things are so valuable. The pearl is so valuable. The treasure is so valuable that it marginalizes everything else they own and they're willing to sell everything they have to to obtain it. Which again begs the question, what's the treasure? What is Jesus talking about? What is so valuable that people should be willing to forfeit everything they have in order to gain it? Here's the answer as best I understand it in Jesus' story. The treasure, the pearl that Jesus is illustrating here is Jesus himself. He is the thing that we should treasure above all else. And the person that finds Jesus, the person that finds him finds something so valuable, so much more valuable and greater than anything else in his or her life that he or she should sell everything that they own in order to possess Jesus. That's what it means to be kingdom-minded. And some of you might argue with me, no, 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 it's not, it's not Jesus, it's about what he's talking about is faith in Christ. That's the treasure, faith in Christ, salvation. Or you might say it's the knowledge about who Jesus is. Okay, I'm okay with that. You, you end up in the same place. Your faith in Christ, the salvation that Jesus Christ gives you is so valuable that it should be more to you than everything else that you own, everything else that you have, everything else that you know. And you should be willing to give away everything to obtain that. That's what Jesus is illustrating here in the parable. It's not unlike what Paul says in the book of Philippians. Paul says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I've said this before. Let me say it again. Harvest Decatur. If you know Christ Jesus, If you have a saving relationship with him, 
You have everything that you need in this life, even if you don't have anything else. And the opposite of that is true as well. If you don't have Jesus, if you don't have faith in Christ, if you don't have salvation that comes through faith in Christ, you don't have anything of value, even if you have everything else. And can I just tell you, this world has a lot of everything else. It does. It's like that Caveman's Call song. You know, this world has nothing for me, and this world has everything. This world has so much, all that I want and nothing that I need. If you have Jesus Christ, you have everything you need, and it devalues everything else in your life. There's actually an argument that could say that it makes it more valuable, everything else in your life, if you prioritize Jesus above all else. So the the first concept, the first idea of being kingdom-minded here is that you treasure Christ as Lord. You treasure Christ as king above all else. That's what it means to be kingdom-minded. Let's look at this third parable because the stakes are ratcheted up even higher in the next parable. What does it mean to be kingdom-minded? You can write this down as number two in your notes. First of all, it means treasuring above all else Christ the king Secondly, it means preparing for Christ's coming judgment. It means preparing for Christ's coming judgment. Jesus says this in verse 47. Here's another parable. Again, says Jesus, here we go again, the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into the containers but threw away the bad. Jesus is using common language again. I mean, many of Jesus' disciples were fishermen. He's telling these things near the Sea of Galilee where there were a lot of fish and a lot of fishermen. So this is common imagery for the people that Jesus is teaching. And the net that he's describing here is actually a a large drag net. It's also called a seine that the fishermen in Jesus' day would understand. It's It's a net that would have... Uh, these sinkers as well as these flotation devices and you would kind of scoop up all that was in the the sea sometimes you would run a dragnet like this between two different boats and scoop up everything that's in the sea indiscriminately the lake it's really a lake the sea of galilee and what happens when you do that when you kind of indiscriminately just take this big dragnet and drag out everything out of the sea is that you get a lot of stuff (laughs) you get a lot of junk and you got to figure out, as you pull all the fish to the side of the, the shore, you know, what's good, what's bad. This is good, this is bad. This is sellable, this is not sellable. When, when Alistair was little, I remember this parable. We used to read this children's Bible. And uh, I remember the illustration for this parable because it was hilarious. So they pulled out, you know, the fishermen pulled out all of the fish and then took out the good fish. And the good fish had like a happy smile on his face like ah, I'm a good fish and then the bad fish had like this menacing look you know with maybe x's over his eyes you know that's a bad fish I miss those days with the children's bibles I hope y'all are enjoying those days but so you kind of wonder okay you're dragging out all of this fish in the sea of Galilee how do you determine what's good and bad what's Jesus illustrating here from what I've read There are roughly 24 species of fish in the Lake of Galilee, Sea of Galilee. And many of those species are inedible or they're unclean by Jewish standards. So some people think that what we're talking about here is the kosher fish and the non-kosher fish. You got to pull out the kosher fish that you can sell to the Jews. And then the, the ugly, disgusting catfish, which they have there, which the Gentiles like to eat. Amen. You can't sell those to the Jews, so you've got to get rid of it. That's the bad fish. You've got the good fish that you can sell that are kosher. Is that what Jesus is talking? Is that what he's illustrating here? I don't think so. I don't think that's what he's talking about here. And the reason I say that is because in the Greek Bible, I know you can't see this in your, your ESV translations, your English translations. There's actually no word for fish in the Greek Bible that's supplied for you to help you make, under, make sense of what Jesus is saying here. So let me read what it literally says in Jesus' parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet thrown into the sea, which gathers all kinds of races. 
Everybody with me? That drags up all kinds of ethnicities. What's Jesus illustrating here? He's, He's illustrating the end of time when all ethnicities, all people, red and yellow, black and white, everybody will come before the throne room of God and be judged. That's what's being illustrated here. Okay, so all of these races, everybody, all human beings throughout human history, we are the fish in Jesus' illustration, okay? We're the fish, all of us. The question still remains, how do you distinguish between good and bad? How do you know the, the fish that are good versus the fish that are bad, the ones that are thrown into containers and sellable, marketable, and those which are no good? Well, what's being illustrated here? is the difference between those who belong to the kingdom of God, the sons and daughters of God. If you're familiar with Jesus' previous parable, we're talking about the wheat. That's the good fish. And the wheat, the sons and daughters of the kingdom of God, are being separated from the weeds, from the bad fish, from the enemies of God. And this, this is a very sobering, uh, uh, this might feel like a happy, happy tale. You know, oh, the fish are being pulled out. This is so much fun. Look at verse 49. No, this, this is sobering. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come and will separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace and to that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, the good and the righteous will be spared God's judgment. The evil will experience God's judgment and be punished for eternity. In the first two parables, Jesus is telling us, forsake everything you can to get Christ. Forsake everything if you need to in order to gain Christ. In this parable, he's telling us, forget everything in order to be found righteous. Forsake everything in order to be found righteous. And if that's true, if Jesus' parable is true, if the entire world is going to come down to one final judgment. Are you good fish or are you bad fish? Are you wheat or are you weeds? And I'll just tell you this morning, Harvest Decatur, that the most important decision in your life, the most important reality in your life right now, as you sit in the sanctuary, as you're watching at home right now, is are you on the good side of the ledger or the bad side of the ledger? Are you good fish or bad fish? Your eternity hinges on this. Do you know which side you're on this morning? And I'll just tell you right now, the entire world is conspiring right now to get you to never think about that or to never even consider that and to just live your life oblivious to your future and to the eternal judgment that awaits you. The world is conspiring to do that right now. That's why I say, that's why this is important. Do not be conformed to the world. Let me give you an example of this. I'll give you an example from my own life. Over Christmas, over the holidays, we spent some time with friends and we played some video games, okay? And I was introduced for the first time to the video game Fortnite. And I know what you guys are thinking. Where have you been, Pastor Tony? That's like four years ago. Okay, well, I'm, I'm slow, okay? And I got some other games that I like, and that's not one of them. But I watched this game, and I, I didn't play it. I just watched another person play it. And, and I was thinking as this person was playing, like, that is so addictive. That is so just absolutely intoxicating to do this and to build these things and to... to, to there is a huge danger. Now, I'm not against video games, okay? So you heard it here first. There's a place for that. There's a place for rest. There's a place to enjoy time with family. There's a place to do that with friends. But I'm just telling you that those kinds of things, those kinds of video games are so dangerous, they will absolutely intoxicate you to the point that you never consider the deeper things in this world. You know how I know that? Because I've had my own experiences with video games in the past, and I know how distracting they've been in my life. I'll give you another example. Over the Christmas, we had a good Christmas. Over Christmas, again, 
we we watched the entire season two of The Mandalorian. Me, Sonia, and Alistair. I got tired of going to work and hearing Ryan talk about it, and I didn't know what he was talking about. So I just sat down. We'll watch it. Now, now we can have a conversation at work. It's great. And I've heard that that show, which is good. I mean, it's fun. It's, I'm not against that. I'm not against that. I don't think that's inherently sinful. But I'll just tell you, I've heard that that show is so much more popular as a streaming show that the second one, the second number two is like so far behind, it's not even close. If you live your life just going from binge watching this to binge watching this and to binge watching this, you will miss out on the deeper questions of life and Satan will be perfectly happy to distract you forever from what's important. I'll give you another example. I'm just getting it all out here, okay? We like board games. We played board games as a family over Christmas. And we hung out with friends. And I'm not against that. That's good. I think that's, there's a lot of positive that can come from that. But if you spend your life going from binge-watching binge TV shows to playing video games to hanging out with friends to binge-watching shows to playing video games to hanging out with friends, you will live your entire life distracted from the deeper things of life. And like I said, Satan is perfectly happy to distract you with these little trivialities, with these things that are in this world. Do you know why you can't do that, Harvest Kidder? Do you know why you can't do that? Because eternity is racing towards you right now. And Jesus is coming back soon. And our eternity hangs in the balance. And other people's eternities hang in the balance. If you've ever read C.S. Lewis screw tape letters, and I hope you do read it, all of you should read it. If you've ever read that book, you know that one of the great tactics of Satan and the demons in that book is distraction. Get them distracted. Don't let them think about any important things. And, you know, I would, I'll just be honest with you. If there, if there wasn't a reckoning, if there wasn't a judgment that Jesus talks about here, and which the New Testament talks about in other places, I mean, I probably would be. Eat, drink, be merry, play video games. Tomorrow we die. What does it matter? But there is a reckoning, and Jesus is coming back. And we do need to be prepared for eternity. And some people aren't prepared for eternity. Don't fall for those distractions, the little trivialities of this world that will consume your time. You know what, you know what I can say about the modern world that's probably more true than it's ever been in the history of our world? You can be distracted by anything and everything. And if you're not careful you'll lose your soul. Or you might miss an opportunity to help another person see the truth of Jesus Christ because you're so distracted by the things of this world. Let's get back to Jesus' parable here and let's unpack this a little bit more. Jesus says this in verse 49. He says, so it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous. Now, the parable is over. In verse 48, y'all get this, right? Like this will happen. Jesus is describing a future reality where the angels will sort out the evil from the righteous. And by the way, that word age there at the close of the age, that's the same word that Paul uses in Romans 12 verse 2. Do not be conformed to this age. Do not be conformed to this world. Why not, Paul? Why not? Because it's coming to an end. And God will judge this age. And God will judge this world. So don't, don't be conformed to it. Live differently from it. Because this age will come to this end, to an end, and God will judge the world, and God will separate the whole world into two categories, evil and righteous. Not just good and bad, but good and bad, righteous and evil, that's what's being described here. And if this is true, if this is going to happen in the future, verse 49 and verse 50, then you need to be absolutely sure right now, in the depth of your soul, that when that great reckoning comes, you will be on the righteous side of the ledger. That you will be, if I can use Jesus' parable, one of the good fish. One of the wheat and not the weeds. Are you sure? Are you absolutely sure which side of the equation you're on? Which side of the ledger you're on? 
If, if you're not, well, let me help you with that, okay? You, you might, how am I righteous? How is somebody declared righteous, Pastor Tony? Paul says this in Romans chapter 3. You can read this on the screen. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned. All of us start out as bad fish, okay? All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We call this in theological circles justification. We are justified. We are declared righteous before God. And there's actually a link here to what Jesus said and what Paul said. And the link is this word righteous or justified. The Greek word for righteous is dikaios. That's the adjective that's used by Jesus, by Matthew, as he's recording Jesus' words in Matthew 13, verse 49. Dikaios. And dikaios is derived from this Greek verb, dikaio which means to justify. Somebody who is justified, dikaio, is being rendered righteous, declared righteous, dikaios. Those are connected there. So what Paul is saying, if there was an English word righteousify, I would use that word. When you put your faith in Christ, when you say, I'm a sinner, yeah, it's so clear. I didn't even need to read the Bible to know that. Like, I know that I'm a sinner. The Bible just confirms it. I'm a sinner. I put my faith in Jesus Christ. And now he's declaring me, you are being made righteousified. You are being declared righteous before God. So back to Romans 3, verse 24. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are righteousified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That is why Jesus is the greatest treasure in the world. That's why you'd be willing to give up everything to get him because he righteousifies you. He declares you righteous when you're not righteous. And now, as the angels come at the end of the age, you are put into the good container as good fish, as wheat, as one of the believers who belong to God and not the unbelievers. What happens to the unbelievers, Pastor Tony? Well, verse 50 is not an analogy. And throw them, the evil ones, into the fiery furnace, into that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hear me when I say this. Verse 50 is not parabolic. It's not hyperbolic. It's not illustrative. There is a literal lake of fire where unbelievers will be sent to for eternity, where there will be gnashing of teeth and weeping for eternity. Don't, don't take my word for it. Take Jesus' word for it. Nobody talked about hell more than Jesus. Nobody. And this is why we have to be different. This is why we can't be distracted by the things of the world because this is a real reality that some people will experience. And if we just blindly and distractingly go on into eternity without even any concern for the world, this is the fate that awaits those who don't know Christ. I spent some time with a pastor. It's been several years now. I was a young pastor at the time, and he was an older pastor. Experienced. And he, he told me that the previous weekend, he just preached a message on hell. And after he preached this message, just dealing with the reality of this destiny for those who don't know Christ, he went into a back room in his church, and he just wept uncontrollably. Because it was so heartbreaking. What awaits those who don't know Christ? It so burdened him that people even in his church might not know Christ. And that is the, the, the destiny that awaits them. Why would, why would, what would possess a pastor like, to preach something like that? Why, why would I talk about this? What would possess me to do this? Why would we talk about this? Unless it's true. Unless, like Jesus says here, this, this is the most important thing and the kingdom of heaven hinges on this. Do you belong to God or do you not? Now talk about dare to be different. It, it'd be a lot easier for me as your pastor to just kind of create a country club mentality, you know, and preach, you know, you know you're, the, you're the best life now and let's be good people and let's get out there. I, I could do that. Actually, I couldn't do that. I could try. 
But this is real. This is the future that awaits those people who don't know Christ as their Savior. Part of being kingdom-minded, Harvest Decatur, is being serious about those who are lost. And you know what we're called to be? We are Christ's ambassadors. We are emissaries of King Jesus. Called to get the message out. So after relaying these principles to Jesus' disciples that have this, this cosmic eternal relevance, look what Jesus asks them. Look at verse 51. He says, have you understood these things, disciples? And they said to him, probably a little hesitantly, yes, I, I think. Or maybe they were, maybe Peter was like, yes, I do. Of course I do. I don't know how they responded. I, you know, they, they, I don't think they understood everything that Jesus was conveying, but they at least get the gist. I think they do understand. There are eternal ramifications for what they're doing, for their discipleship role, for their representing of Jesus. And, and let me just ask Jesus' question of you, Harvest Decatur, those of you watching at home right now. Do you understand all these things? Do you understand how important this is, what Jesus is saying to you? Do you understand these parables, how to treasure Christ above all else, what's going to happen at the final judgment when everybody will be put into two categories, righteous and wicked? Do you understand these things? If you say, like Jesus Jesus' disciples here, yes, I understand. Jesus says this, okay, since you understand this, here's another parable. Verse 52, and he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Oh, okay, so you understand the easy stuff. I'm going to give you a hard thing here, says Jesus at the end. What? What are we talking about here? What is new and what is old? What's Jesus saying here to his disciples? Here's what he's saying. He's saying you are being tasked, disciples, of Jesus Christ with telling people about the kingdom. You are the scribes. You are the kingdom proclaimers. You have access to the treasure that will literally determine a person's destiny. So go tell people about it. Go be emissaries of the king proclaiming his kingdom. So you can write this down as number three in your notes. What does it mean to be kingdom-minded? It means three things. It means treasuring above all else Christ the king. It means preparing for Christ's coming kingdom, and it means laboring to bring others into Christ's kingdom. Laboring to bring others into Christ's kingdom. You know, one of the things that's implicit as we talk about the kingdom of heaven, one of the things that is part of that is that Jesus is the king. He's the king that we proclaim. He's the king that rules over his kingdom. And even though he never says that, Jesus never says that in Matthew 13. I'm the king. I'm the king. It's obvious that that's what he's talking about. And it's certainly obvious at the end of Matthew when he is raised from the dead. Who else is the king? He is the king and he's the Lord. You know, I think we as Americans, we might bristle at this talk about kingdom. Yeah, I like kingdom, but Jesus is king. I read a quote from Tony Evans this last week about the kingship of Jesus. You can read this on the screen. See if this resonates with you. Evans says, sure, redemption appeals to us in our autonomous, me-centered culture. We tend to be highly independent and self-serving. And many would even argue that our culture has given rise to an epidemic of narcissistic thinking. To acknowledge Jesus as king conjures up responses of obedience, dependence, honor, respect, and self-sacrifice. Ooh, we don't like that. It goes against what our culture tells us is the way to live our lives. Regardless, says Evans, Jesus is king. 
And unless and until we understand and submit to Christ's rightful rule, we will not experience fully his power. If I could summarize what Jesus is saying here in these parables, I think it's that statement right there. What, is, what does it mean to be kingdom-minded? It means we acknowledge Jesus' rightful rule and we submit to him as our king. And not only that, we labor to bring others into his kingdom. And this is what Jesus is telling his disciples to do in verse 52. Jesus calls his disciples to this role. He calls them to be scribes and to be masters of a house, which must have been very flattering to them. I mean, they're, they're not scribes. They're, they're fishermen. They're day laborers. They become scribes later. They write books of the New Testament. But, but Jesus, you're, you represent me now. You write for me. You speak for me. You, you talk for me. You're, you're an emissary of the king as part of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven, i.e. every disciple of Christ Jesus, this word for trained here in Greek is the word mathetuo, which is a verbal, which, which is the verbal link to the noun mathetes, disciple. Everyone who has been discipled, everybody has been trained. Jesus discipled these disciples. And now he, he's sending them, you represent me. You belong to me. You are emissaries of the king. You get out there and tell other people about Jesus. You bring out your treasure, good, new, and old. What does that mean? The scribes in Jesus' day who didn't affirm his lordship or his kingship, they could only bring out the treasures that were old. They couldn't bring out new treasure. So what a disciple of Jesus does is he brings out treasure, you even as a disciple, bring out treasure both old and new. You can look at the Old Testament and you can say, that's talking about Jesus. That's pointing forward to Jesus. That's a prophecy concerning Jesus. That's talking about our coming Savior. Those are the treasures of old, but you also have the new covenant. You also have the new testament. You also have Jesus' teaching. You can bring the treasures new, what we would call the gospel. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, his salvation that he gave to us, which we can appropriate into our lives by faith. You harvest decatur are a disciple of the Lord Jesus. You bring out treasure to the world. And by what is treasure? What treasure? I think it's the same treasure as before. It's Jesus. It's knowledge about Jesus, declared in the Old Testament, affirmed in the New Testament, and the great treasure of the New Testament, I would say the Old and the New Testament, is the gospel. You are a sinner, and you are lost, but by faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can have your sins forgiven. You can become wheat instead of weeds. You can become good fish instead of bad fish. You can become a believer who enters into eternity with the Lord instead of an unbeliever who enters into eternity of lostness and suffering and hell and gnashing of teeth. That's what Jesus is saying here. This is what it means to be kingdom-minded. Harvesticator. We treasure Christ the King above all else. We prepare for Christ's judgment. And we labor to bring others into Christ's kingdom. I'll just tell you, this is radically different from what the world would want you to do with your life. Or what the world would have you focus on. The world wants you to focus on your own kingdom. And your own self as king. Or the world would want you to focus on the kingdom of some celebrity or some athlete. The world would want you to focus on the kingdom of some political movement or some political ideologue. I'm not giving myself to that. I'm not about that kingdom. I'm about the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And he is my king. Jesus said it this way in another place. Matthew 6, verse 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Right? You only have one life, harvesticator. You have one life to live. Don't waste it 
chasing the wrong kingdoms or submitting yourself to the false kings of this world. You only live once. YOLO, baby. You only have one life. Don't waste it. C.T. Studd, he said it this way in his poem, Only One Life. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord, to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life, twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. I'll close with this. And it'll be a short close, not like normal, okay? When I was a kid, I learned a song that stuck with me for the rest of my life, 35 plus years. I've been singing this song. And I can honestly say I don't remember a time in my life when I actually learned this song. I, can't, I don't remember a time in my life when I didn't know this song. It's just been a part of my life from my childhood. And it's a simple song. It's actually just one verse of Scripture. It's Matthew six thirty three. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Y'all ever heard that before? I want to sing that. Stand with me, could we? Lord, you are so worthy of our praise. We glorify you in this place. Lord, we take this command from you to us seriously. Help us to seek your kingdom first above all the distractions of this world. It's so easy, Lord, to be sucked in to things that are not of you, not of your kingdom, not of your purposes, not emphasizing you as king. God, keep our focus on you, we pray. Help us to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of our minds, we pray. Help us with that, Lord, we pray in your name. Amen.